Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Missner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop. And it, the title is Managing the Side Effects of Immunotherapy. And this is part two of a two-part series on immunotherapy, a promising new approach to treating cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really, it is because of that collaboration and your interest in this program. And I realize that this topic is one that is it's hard to pick up the newspaper or listen to the radio or TV or social media and not hear about this topic. And so here it is with really experts in the field presenting on this topic. So we have today on the call over 453 participants. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, France, India, Ireland, Japan, Singapore, Sweden, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really from really all over the world. And it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Um, now we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I, um, and I just want to acknowledge that this program is supported by the Celgene Corporation, EMD Serrano, Pfizer, and a grant from Genentech, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program. And now on to our speakers. And we have really the best speakers um, today on this program. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Slovin. And Dr. Slovin is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Royal College of Cornell University. And Dr. Slovin is going to present an overview of immunotherapy and how the side effects of immunotherapy differ from chemotherapy side effects. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Slovin. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and welcome to everyone. I really can't do justice to the field of immunotherapy in a very short time, but I'm hoping I can hit the highlights and at least bring to your attention what is now really a new field of medical treatment. Many of you are aware that they, we have standards of care for different disease types and that very often chemotherapy plays a very important role in particular to a variety of different cancers. and really have saved many a life, not to mention improve the quality of life of many patients. But what's a little different about the area I'm going to talk about, immunotherapy versus chemotherapy, is the mechanism of action. So when we always think of chemotherapy or the big C, people are very fearful about treatment-associated side effects. But more importantly, the difference between what we'll discuss about immunotherapy and is different than chemotherapy is that chemotherapy is often what we call a cytotoxic drug. It means that it gets in between the DNA or the reproductive site of the cancer cell and it poisons the cancer cell so the cancer cell can't divide and grow. And that's where all the side effects can, uh, come, uh, can be derived, meaning a little nausea and fatigue and the like. Immunotherapy is very attractive and I want to underscore the fact that immunotherapy has been around since the 1800s, and that's starting out with uh, Jenner and the cowpox virus. As it turns out, there have been multiple approaches toward using the body's immune system to fight the cancer, and the term immunotherapy implies just that. How do we manipulate the immune system to work against the cancer and at the same time make sure that the immune system does not destroy normal tissues? One of the major concerns about immunotherapy in general, and that uh, includes vaccines, it includes proteins called antibodies, or even combined approaches using uh, drugs that are hooked on to antibodies that are made commercially in a laboratory, and that, that the side effect profile, as I mentioned before, is a little bit different. But the mechanism of action, more importantly, is very distinct from that of chemotherapy. In most cases, we have 
a, an immune system that's defined as making certain proteins called antibodies as well as specialized cells that will recognize the cancer and attack it. Many a great mind has come to the conclusion that the reason that cancer succeeds while our immune system fails has really to do with immune surveillance, that many of the cells that are in the body that become malignant are actually what we call altered self molecules. These are part of normal cell structure, but something changes them such that one cell becomes malignant. As such, when we say altered self, the immune system sees a lot that's very similar to the normal cells in the body and hence does not react. And therefore, we often say, well, there's a problem with immune surveillance. Indeed, there is because the immune system doesn't recognize these cells because they just look too closely akin to the normal cells of the body. So different approaches have to be made in order to really get the immune system to understand how to recognize something that's foreign. Now, what's revolutionized the cancer field, both in a variety of different diseases, and that includes melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, head and neck cancer, bladder cancer, gastrointestinal malignancies, and kidney cancers, and to the lesser part, prostate cancer, is what we call checkpoint inhibitors. It's a special kind of immune therapy, and it's based on the understanding that there are molecules within these immune cells in our body that act to prevent the immune system from taking off on its own and destroying normal cells in the body. The commercially prepared what we call checkpoint inhibitors are mainly antibodies or proteins that take the break off these what we call inhibitory molecules, meaning that these cells have molecules within them that really don't allow the immune system to go haywire. What these drugs or checkpoint inhibitors do is that they take the break off these molecules that normally act to prevent your body from going awry, and they literally say, go for it. So this class of drugs, if you want to call them, are really antibodies that are directed to these inhibitory or these molecules that don't allow the immune system to go haywire, and they now allow the immune system to really work optimally. They are not without side effects, and that means that uh, since these are molecules that usually would have prevented the immune system from attacking itself, the addition of these novel drugs actually can lead to side effects that manifest as severe fatigue, inflammation of the skin, inflammation of the lung, not to mention a variety of other uh, very substantial side effects, such that even if a patient is responding to treatment and they, their disease goes away, they still could be at very high risk of having side effects as a result of these drugs. So essentially, we're, we're changing or swapping disease control for not really activation of the disease, but activation of side effects that really would ordinarily be under uh, very good control. There are significant uh, innovations in terms of how to treat these side effects so that they are uh, able to uh, enable the patient to continue with the drug, and that usually includes using uh, steroids such as prednisone or decatron. There are other agents that may help the body uh, get to uh, become, uh, I guess, more used to the drug. I think the most important thing that patients need to know, and this includes also nursing and medical personnel, and that is early recognition of anything that doesn't seem right. So a patient who may have uh, an immune side effect of diarrhea. What constitutes diarrhea? Very often people say, well, you know, I had diarrhea, when in reality it was just a loose bowel movement. And just by letting somebody know that there's a difference in the change of the bowel habit automatically will alert the doctor to start a treatment to prevent these symptoms from skyrocketing. So I can't tell you enough how enthusiastic I am about how this field has burgeoned forward over the last several years. We are really working very efficiently in keeping patients 
disease under good control and uh, again early recognition of any side effects need to be dealt with in a very efficient manner so thank you all for listening and back to you Dr. Mesner oh thank you so much Dr. Slovin that was a wonderful presentation you're a most esteemed colleague you are and do a wonderful introduction to this whole program so thank you and um, our our next speaker is Dr. Alan Bryce. Hi. Um, uh, hi. But, and Dr. Bryce um, is um, with Mayo Clinic, and he is going to present, and he, my, my esteemed colleague, a colleague, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Dr. Bryce, and he is going to present a review of potential side effects with guidelines for follow-up care and managing flu-like symptoms, including a fever. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Bryce. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you for the audience for being on today. Um, Dr. Slovin gave us a, a very nice introduction into immunotherapy and how it's transforming medical care. And I know this is something that the audience is well familiar with. And as she explained, immunotherapy is not cancer-specific in its effect. That is, it causes a generalized activation of the immune system. And so there are side effects which really are uh, the very direct effect of having an overactive immune system, which of course is exactly what we're trying to achieve. But because these effects aren't specific to the cancer, the activity of the immune system can end up attacking almost any organ system in the body, thus leading to the side effects that we're going to talk about. So in essence, in, in all instances here, what we're talking about is inflammation of healthy tissue as a consequence of immune stimulation from these immunotherapy drugs. So with the most common immunotherapy drugs on the market today, that is the PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors, or with the original uh, Uravoy, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor, the overall rate of some side effects in most patients is somewhere in the range of 70 to 80% of patients will have some side effect or another. But in fact, most of these side effects are quite mild, and for most patients, the drugs are very well tolerated. And that's why immunotherapy is so attractive, uh, because it's much easier to tolerate than chemotherapy for most patients. And it's something that we can legitimately consider, even in the oldest or most frail patients. You know, the famous example being uh, President Carter, who was a fairly frail 90-year-old man when he underwent immunotherapy treatment. So the most common side effect patients will see is typically in the skin, and this is a rash could be red, it could be uh, accompanied by you know small raised bumps, it could itch, uh, but rarely is this very significant. It's something that's typically fairly e easily managed, topical creams, steroids, Benadryl, things like that. And only in more significant cases would any pills or oral therapies be required, although in those instances your dermatologist is usually going to do a biopsy just to make sure that in fact what we're dealing with is immune side effects rather than something else. And in most cases, the therapy can be continued right through the rash because, again, it's usually not that significant. It's more of an annoyance rather than a true problem. Other common side effects include fatigue, and this can be very general, and I think uh, one of our later speakers is going to speak some to fatigue. Dr. Fleischman is going to address this. Um, but here again, this tends to be more annoying than truly problematic. It's, it's rarely severe, although, although it certainly can be, and as I say, Dr. Fleischman will speak to it more. Inflammation of the lungs can lead to cough or shortness of breath. Again, not typically severe. Most cases are fairly mild. But if it does happen, this can be a significant problem because on occasion, people will have enough lung inflammation that they need to be on supplemental oxygen or they need to be hospitalized. And if something like that happens, then the physician is going to have to turn down the immune system. You know, if you think that with the immunotherapy, we essentially have turned the dial on the immune system up to 11, then when a patient gets significant side effects like lung inflammation or pneumonitis, then we have to turn that dial back, let's say to a 5 or a 6, uh, with some kind of immunosuppressant. This is usually steroids. And as we speak about follow-up care and the long-term management of uh, the side effects, one of the key points here is that 
it takes quite a long time and consistent therapy to really control these side effects. So if a patient does get hospitalized with lung inflammation or pneumonitis and started on high-dose steroids, they'll typically stay on that for several weeks with a long, slow taper of the, of the steroid medication. One of the most problematic side effects that we pay a lot of attention to is colitis, that is diarrhea coming from inflammation of the bowel, and Dr. Sloven spoke to this some. Of course, diarrhea happens normally as well, so one of the first steps for the, your physician is going to be to evaluate the cause of the diarrhea and determine whether this is immune-related or whether it's potentially infectious. You know, a, a, an immunotherapy patient can still get food poisoning just like anyone else, right, or normal cause of diarrhea. So going through that workup is very important. And one of the principal things we always emphasize to the immunotherapy patient is the need to be in close contact with your physician. I tell my patients, I want you to call us if your bowel habits change, and we really want to talk about this almost on a daily basis. What I don't want is my patient sitting at home trying to tough it out for four or five days while they have diarrhea ten times a day. Because in the very early clinical trials, there was the occasional patient who would die of diarrhea because it went too far before the physician was alerted. And in modern therapy, that should almost never happen because we should be able to intervene, again, with high-dose steroids early in the course and prevent severe cases. We talked about endocrinopathies, and this is where the hormone system of the body can be affected, and almost any of the glands can be affected. So this could be the pituitary, the thyroid, the adrenal glands. And when that happens, these tend to be permanent effects. That is, the immune system has, has slowed down or shut down these glands, and then the patient needs to be on long-term hormone replacement therapy. Almost all of these side effects I'm talking about are limited. They can be reversed, except for the endocrinopathies. Uh, for example, hypothyroidism, patients tend to end up on lifelong thyroid hormone replacement. Very easily managed and something that your doctor is usually going to identify from the blood work. It's usually not something where you'll know the symptoms in advance. And then really there's a long list of other potential side effects. Really any organ system in the body can become inflamed from the immune system. And these are things that most of you are probably familiar with as, as autoimmune diseases, things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, uh, various uh, uh, inflammatory conditions that can affect patients. And almost any of these can be induced by immunotherapy. And also, patients who have any of these conditions before the start of therapy should anticipate a flare of their condition as immunotherapy gets going, so management is very important. And lastly, just to speak to the point of the flu-like symptoms, and then I'll, I'll wrap up, fever certainly can happen. We are inducing inflammation. That is the intent of immunotherapy. But most of the time, this can be managed in the normal fashion. So Tylenol, ibuprofen, most of the time we don't have to do anything too dramatic beyond that to manage it. And usually, if we manage it once, it'll settle down and doesn't end up being a, a chronic or recurring issue. Uh, so with that, I'll wrap up, and I'm happy to take questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bryce. And I just wanted to properly introduce Dr. Bryce. Dr. Bryce is Vice Chair, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Director, Genomic Oncology Service, Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And um, he's spoken on our, many of our programs, and thank you so much, Dr. Bryce, for that excellent and really outstanding presentation. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next presenter um, is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Um, Dr. Fleischman is um, a former founding director, Cancer Supportive Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, and author, researcher, in oncology. Um, and Dr. Fleischman is going to address discussing dealing with fatigue and controlling diarrhea, and talking with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you for all the participants in this call. Uh, this is an evolving um, type of uh, situation where we're learning a lot more as the months go by about you know what uh, people are experiencing when taking these uh, new therapies, the good things, as well as some of the side effects. So I would bet that if uh, in two or three years we do the 
same presentation, the t same topic, we would have different presentations because uh, so much we're learning so much more about what's going on. So the previous speakers uh, alluded to uh, two of the main side effects that we're going to emphasize today, which are fatigue and diarrhea. Fatigue is, as everyone um, knows, common in everyday life, but this is the kind of, the, of fatigue that is much stronger, much harder to push through. It's not just a matter of uh, mental toughness and willpower, but you want to do things and your body just can't follow through. And when this happens, um, either uh, from cancer itself or from a cancer treatment, and it could be a variety of cancer treatments, not just the immunotherapies, um, please uh, bring this to the attention of your treatment care team, your doctor and your nurse need to know about this. They will first go about checking for all the reversible causes. Um, are you anemic? Is there a kidney or liver problem that's making you tired? Is there a problem in the adrenal glands? There's a very long list, a sort of a checkoff list that we go through to make sure that there's no reversible metabolic problem that's behind the fatigue. Um, could be the start of diabetes. Um, you know, there are a variety of things that can happen, and sometimes two things do happen at once, maybe unrelated or maybe tangentially related. Once um, that's ruled out, we really used to sort of shrug our shoulders and not know what to do next. But now with the experience we have, and taking a very practical look at all this, we know that fatigue is really a function of four different things that happen um, in our lives during cancer treatment, and that's good nutrition, activity, movement. We hate to say exercise because that has a somewhat a negative connotation, but activity and movement are very important, um, and sleep, rest, and sleep. Those are the kinds of pillars that really need to be in balance for all of us to um, be have the most energy possible, and more energy is the opposite of fatigue. So more energy is less fatigue. We're going to speak about diet in a bit. So the level of activity or movement that you have is, again, an important thing to discuss um, with your oncology team. Um, if your blood counts are okay and your platelet count is okay, you may actually be referred to a um, physiatrist, a physical medicine rehabilitation specialist, or physical therapist, depending upon where you live. Um, to give you some basic kinds of movement exercises to do. You're not going to build a lot of muscle. The idea is to stay flexible um, and to make yourself a little more tired, which sounds backwards. You feel tired to begin with. Why would you be want to do something to make yourself a little more tired? But if you do, then there are good effects on appetite, rest, and sleep, and often that makes a difference and makes the fatigue actually uh, diminish or go away entirely. So um, exercise or movement and activity is really, really important. Many of the medicines that we give during cancer treatment, uh, particularly anti-nausea medicines, which may or may not be given with uh, the immunotherapies, depending upon what other treatments you've had before, um, can uh, throw our sleep cycle off and um, getting some good, restful, restorative sleep, whether it's through a good napping or a good, good sleep at night, is really important to hold up the other pillars in this system. So uh, your team needs to be able to uh, reinforce all this. And the kinds of things we do to improve sleep are the usual things that we um, advise to all people, quiet place, proper temperature, some people like it cooler, some people not, um, a dark room, um, undisturbed, um, good pillow, pillow that supports the neck, a good mattress, those kinds of things that really can make a difference. So um, from the fatigue perspective, that's how we think of this um, during immunotherapy treatment. Diarrhea perspective, which is, uh, again, the kind of thing that you'd say, why is this so important? It's really important, as the other speakers have said, because this can account for a significant loss of fluid and the very important salts, sodium, potassium, that um, medically we like to call electrolytes. And uh, mild diarrhea we think of as less than four bowel movements a day. So when you discuss this with your team, try to give a really good estimate about how many bowel movements you're having a day. And mild is considered less than four a day. And the kinds of things we'd suggest sometime are some fiber supplements with much less water than you would use. Uh, for constipation because that can absorb some of the extra fluid and give you the, the 
a mass in a bowel movement that you can actually control, so it, you're less likely to have to run to the bathroom so many times during the day. As you heard already, check for infectious causes, very important. Uh, as the other speakers have said, it's possible to get some bad food in the middle of all this, and we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, we are learning a lot more about the importance of the bacteria in our um, in our intestines, and um, I think as the months go by, we'll learn more about this idea of a microbiome in our intestines and the use of probiotics. And some probiotics may be very helpful. Most are non-prescription items, and again, discuss this with your cancer treatment team. There are a number of medicines that actually slow down the muscle action in the bowels. That can be very helpful for mild diarrhea. Those include loperamide, sometimes known as Imodium, or Dipanaxolate, sometimes known as Lomatil. Um, and those are prescription items. Uh, lo, the, excuse me, the um, loperamide is over the counter in the United States, and uh, diphenoxalate is a prescription item. Uh, in the past, when diarrhea has become very severe, we often have used something called tincture of opium that does not have any of the um, brain active qualities that some of the other opioids do, but can be very helpful when used properly for uh, diarrhea, usually beyond the mild, though. Um, when, it, when the diarrhea becomes moderate, which is less than seven times a day, again, we want to make sure that you're replacing all of the water and salt losses, and that can be done with a variety of over-the-counter products that are available, some for children, some for adults. The key is that they have both sodium salts and potassium salts. Potassium salt, the loss of potassium salts is often what makes us feel so horrible when we have a diarrhea. But the important thing is to look for colitis and inflammation of the intestines. And for that, your doctor will send you for a, a test called a flexible sigmoidoscopy, where a flexible scope is placed through the rectum to look around and see if there's inflammation, can even take some um, samples to make sure that what, the, what is causing the inflammation. That's really important to do when um, diarrhea is becoming moderate. Um, there are some other ant specific anti-inflammatories that, interestingly enough, are in the aspirin family, but really only act in the bowel. Uh, so the kinds of things that are um, prescribed sometimes are sulfasalazine, known as asulfidine, some countries, or methylamine, also called pentas or acicol, and they stay in the bowels. They don't go outside the bowels and are free of a lot of the other side effects of aspirin that we're concerned about. For severe diarrhea, more than seven bowel movements a day. Usually that's time to think about being in the hospital so you can have the fluids and salts replaced intravenously. The electrolytes can be monitored, the level of anemia can be monitored, um, and, and sometimes even need, need, need to be treated with a different kind of uh, monoclonal antibody, often used for people with, who have colitis as the primary problem. Um, infliximab um, is the one that most comes to mind. Um, but again, that's a discussion with your uh, treatment care team. Important to really count the bowel movements and to let them know um, how disabling this is because it's important we can go about doing the things that I mentioned so we can try to bring this to a halt before it gets to be a problem. We hate for people to be hospitalized. Uh, we like people to be at home in their own beds and feeling as healthy and functional as possible. So again, a lot of information in a short amount of time, and I'll turn this back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding. And very important topics. People really um, often don't report these symptoms sometimes and don't realize that there's so much that can be done to help them. So thank you so much for the detail. It's really important. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Mario Lacatour. Dr. Lacatour is Director, Oncodermatology Program, Associate Attending Physician, Department of Dermatology, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Associate Professor of Dermatology, Wild Cornell Medical College. Um, and Dr. Lacatour is going to be addressing understanding your skin's reaction to immunotherapy, managing skin changes, including rash and dry skin, care of your hair and nails, and sun safety tips. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lacatour. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and I would like to thank all of you today listening to our program from all over the world. <clears throat> 
I will be speaking about uh, dermatologic side effects that can affect your skin, especially uh, those that relate to the immunotherapies that have been so well described by my colleagues and that also accompany many of the other side effects that occur in people receiving immunotherapies. And I would like to start out by saying that one of the reasons we are so worried about side effects to immunotherapies is because of the remarkable results these drugs have had on people's lives through the amazing work that oncologists have done in identifying these medications and how they can be better utilized to uh, improve and prolong the lives and save the lives of so many people. In terms of the skin, the importance lies in the fact that the skin manifested by a rash and other side effects is usually the first to be affected, with a rash affecting usually the trunk and the chest and back in about 40 to 60% of people receiving immunotherapies. This rash looks red and bumpy, as was mentioned before by Dr. Bryce, and it tends to be itchy. What is important about this rash is that it is benign, or in other words, it is not dangerous in the great majority of cases. However, it can extend and progress to involve most of the surfaces in the body. Therefore, as Dr. Fleischman said before, uh, and Dr. Bryce also mentioned, it is important for you to indicate or to call your oncologist as soon as uh, one of these rashes appears so that it can be treated and it does not get to a point where the drug needs to be interrupted. Now, in addition to this rash, as Dr. Slovin so wonderfully described uh, the mechanisms of these drugs, another side effect is characterized by your own immune system attacking your skin. And by doing so, your skin can lose its normal color. So now people will be having these uh, patches or areas in the skin that are devoid of any color. This is really not a dangerous side effect, but for some people it can be cosmetically disturbing. Interestingly, both the rash that occurs in about one out of three or one out of two people and this change in skin color has been associated to a better clinical response to immunotherapies. In other words, people who develop a rash and who develop these uh, colors in their changes in the color of their skin appear to have a better response to the immunotherapy and even live longer. So if you or a family member or someone you know is having one of these side effects uh, with their immunotherapy, keep in mind that it may be associated with a better response and it also will be a little bit motivating to know that uh, having this problem is uh, also uh, worth something in the sense that it may be associated with a better response. The majority of these cases can be treated uh, very well with uh, certain creams or oral medications prescribed by your doctor that suppress your immune system to a certain degree. In a, and the changes in skin color are not so easily treated, but thankfully most people appear not to be very bothered by it. But if someone really wants treatment for it, there may be some things that can be done with uh, the support of a dermatologist. Now, in addition to this, itching is also very common with immunotherapies. I've seen people that can't sleep for several days because of the intense itch. Thankfully, there are things that can be done, mostly in the uh, sense of prescription creams or oral medications, pills that are normally used for pain, such as Neurontin or Lyrica, appear to be very effective for the itching associated with immunotherapies. In addition to this, it is important to know that immunotherapies, although they are not like conventional chemotherapy like Dr. Slovin mentioned, can in ver a very small portion or a very small number of people cause hair loss. But this is not the hair loss that is traditionally associated with chemotherapy, but it's a person's own immune system attacking those hair follicles and causing patches of hair loss on the scalp or anywhere else in the body. 
if this does occur, it can be a little bit difficult to treat, but it would be important to seek the attention of a dermatologist for potentially new therapies that are currently emerging that may be able to mitigate this, uh, this um, sometimes devastating uh, side effect from therapy. Another thing that is important to keep in mind is to always avoid using detergents and soaps that have a lot of fragrances, as, as these can irritate the skin even more. And finally, it is also important to remember, as has been mentioned before by Dr. Slobin, your immune system will be very, very active. So anything that inflames your skin will be even worse. So if you go out in su on sunny days, it is important to protect yourselves against the sun because sunburns can be very severe if your immune system is active. So avoid going outside unprotected between the hours of 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. And if you do go out during those times, it is important to apply a sunscreen with a sun protection factor of at least 30 every two hours or every hour if swimming or sweating. In addition, it is also important to use sun protective clothing, a broad brimmed hat and long sleeves if it's very sunny outside. And then finally, of course, it is important to protect your eyes as your eyes or the, the, the very thin skin that covers your eyes can also become sunburned. So in summary, dermatologic side effects or skin side effects, usually rash, are the most common and the first to appear in people receiving immunotherapies. Thankfully, the presence of this side effect will usually mean that the immunotherapy is working. However, I don't want those that do not develop a rash to worry that the drug is not working because that is not the case. But for those that are suffering with a rash and itching and other uh, side effects, to know that this likely means that the immune system is more active in your, in your body, therefore more active for what your oncologist wants to use it for. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Lacatura. That was really outstanding, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Very important area. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is a dietitian, and she's with the Michael E. Bakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips during immunotherapy. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns with immunotherapy. Nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance um, during treatment, throughout treatment, um, and they help provide you the energy and um, the drive to do the things you enjoy. Uh, a plant-based diet is most ideal um, through prevention, um, during treatment, and in survivorship. And how that translates is that having about two-thirds of your plate with a plant-based food, such as a whole grain, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. Um, the benefit from plant-based foods is they provide antioxidants and phytochemicals. And these particular components help protect ourselves um, from damaging effects. And um, treatment, you know, can affect good cells and bad cells. And um, when cells are damaged, that's oftentimes why fatigue happens and those sorts of things uh, when it's in it's a treatment-related situation. However, um, when you're selecting your plant-based foods, fresh or frozen are the best forms um, to start with. And frozen's great because it's picked straight off the vine, it's washed, it's cut, and then it's just frozen. Um, you get a better flavor oftentimes that way, and the colors are a lot more rich. And the colors tell us a lot about the food. Um, the different colors help translate the nutrients, the phytochemicals that are in the food. And so we do want to keep a variety of those on our plate. The other third of your plate should be coming from a lean protein, such as a wild-caught fish, including cold-water fish, such as halibut, salmon, tuna, sardines. Those are some examples. Um, poultry and beans um, are also great to bring in because they're also considered lean protein sources. And protein is important. It's a building block for healing. And um, it also is part of our energy. So if we don't get enough calories in during the day, we can use protein as an energy, and that can also oftentimes put our body in a, a form of depletion. So we want to make sure to get enough calories and enough protein in our diet. 
there may be a need for you to take supplements or modify your diet based on your unique circumstances. If you're not directed by a healthcare professional um, on your, your care team to do so, please talk with your team before making any changes. It might seem harmless, but there could potentially be interactions with your therapy and herbs and, and things that seem very benign, herbs and supplements. So just communicate for the best, what's the best plan for you. Dehydration um, is a common thing. I like to just bring it up. Um, I talked about a little bit today with diarrhea being a, a potential side effect from the treatment. And when you're dehydrated, it can increase symptoms like nausea, fatigue, make you feel dizzy, lightheaded. And just a reminder that fluids are anything that come as liquid is, is at room temperature. So this includes water, juice, sports drinks. Um, if you do need an electrolyte replacement, there's several on the market like um, was talked about a little earlier, but you want to look for the ones that actually um, are a little bit more fitting for someone who's experiencing diarrhea. Um, a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid per day, um, but signs and symptoms of dehydration um, can be either thirst is number one. Sometimes your skin um, can seem less resilient if you go to pinch part of it and then it, it, it doesn't bounce back as quickly, or your urine can become darker than um, ideal. Um, some other side effects, um, nausea, vomiting, and fatigue that we talked about earlier um, are all potentials, but communicating with your healthcare team when you notice changes, the sooner the better so that they can help you um, address those needs very quickly. If you're experiencing side effects, I always recommend to patients to keep a daily record of what you've eaten. Sometimes what you're eating can be aggravating the situation, and sometimes we can make suggestions based on that to help you. Um, it, it'll also help make aware of your team, like how much you're eating, how often you're he eating, so that that communication's there as well. Reaching out to your dietitian on your team can be very helpful. They can describe um, and provide information that's unique for your situation. Um, each patient's an individual, and so um, it's best to get the guidance from your team about your care. I'm going to wrap it up with that. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll pass the line back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Diana. That was really wonderful, excellent. And um, um, and we're going to take questions in just a minute. I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care before we do that. Um, cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide support to people living with cancer, and that translates into financial and practical systems, as well as an opportunity to talk with uh, one of our oncology social workers about your concerns or questions um, and our need for support and counseling. Um, we do that both on the telephone, um, and we also talk with you online, and we have a number of different groups. We have a telephone and online support groups. We, at the moment, have 120 online support groups, so all different types of groups, and I'm sure you would be able to find a group of interest to you. Um, and uh, you also would be able to talk with one of our oncology social workers as well. Um, all of our groups and all of our programs here are all offered by and provided by oncology social workers. So when you call our 800 number, you're talking with a um, licensed oncology social worker. And um, I think uh, in addition to that, um, we also have, of course, these workshops, and we also have an enormous amount of publications, and of course our website is shocked full of information. So um, I want to just be sure that you know that you can access these services, and at the end of the program, you're going to be getting an evaluation form, and in that evaluation form will be all the phone numbers and websites and everything that you could possibly need, both about cancer care and other resources that you could utilize. And now we have time for questions, and I'm going to ask Ayala to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press a pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then 1. So we have a question um, from one of our online participants, and I'm going to ask this question of Dr. Um, Bryce to start with. Um, so the question is, I have seasonal allergies. Does that mean that I will have a greater risk of side effects than someone who doesn't have allergies? Could you comment on that um, in general? And, of course, um, we asked our, our, our person posting this question to go back to the treating healthcare team. Dr. Bryce? Yeah, so, so we haven't seen that allergies lead to 
you know, significant compromise in patients' tolerance of immunotherapy uh, or the response to therapy. Uh, you know, it's certainly a common problem. You know, seasonal allergies, I'm in practice here in Arizona, are, are florid right now, and so a significant proportion of my patients certainly suffer from the same problem, but it really doesn't affect our decision-making in that um, it, the, you know, any flare of the allergies is certainly manageable through the, the normal uh, management. I, I would make the point that having some degree of side effects is actually a good thing because it does tell us that the, that the drugs are working well, and patients who have mild toxicities from immunotherapy ultimately have better tumor response than patients who, than patients who have no toxicities at all. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, a question for Dr. Wakatour from one of our online participants. I've been getting rashes on my face since after I had my first doses of immunotherapy. My doctor advised me to apply lotion and sunscreen. What else can I do to make my skin feel better? It is extremely itchy. So, Dr. Mm-hmm. Wakatour, if you could address this in a general way. Yes, thanks very much, Carolyn. And that's precisely the the itching. It's something that is very unique to these types of drugs that we have not seen as marked or as uh, not been associated with a rash as we have seen with these drugs. So in terms of treating itch, there are several things you can do. If the itch is very localized to a small area of the body, ideally one one would use topical medications, in other words, creams, lotions, or ointments, that would be applied directly to the area. It is important to note that these creams, uh, lotions, or ointments should contain a medication that blocks the immune system locally. Uh, And those medications will usually be prescription medications. Usually things that you can obtain over the counter will not be strong enough to control the itch of most causes. So it's important for you to talk to your oncologist or your dermatologist and ask them to prescribe a strong, what is called a strong topical corticosteroid or a topical steroid and apply it to the area two to three times a day. If the itch is persistent and does not improve with this topical corticosteroid, what we have found to be very effective is oral medications, pills. These pills um, are also used for other conditions, such as conditions that are characterized by pain. Keep in mind that itching also goes through the nerves like pain. Therefore, medications such as gabapentin, or Neurontin or Pregabalin, also called Lyrica, have been shown to be very effective by blocking those nerve impulses that go to the brain indicating the sensation of itch. So topical corticosteroids and oral um, medications like Neurontin and Lyrica prescribed by your doctor will be the most effective solutions for your itch. Thank you very much. Thanks. I hope that's helpful. And of course, um, discuss all this with your treating team. But thank you so much, Dr. Lacatour. And we have another online question from one of, um, for, and this will be for Dr. Bryce. Is electanic elk gene target considered an immunotherapy? I hear different terms like targeted therapy, and I see the radiation sign on my pills, so it's confusing. Yeah. So, so there, there's a certain amount of terminology that's probably a bit um, imprecise that floats around. You know, there's a difference between, uh, you know, truly scientific terminology that uh, perhaps physicians, you know, use with each other um, versus, of course, we're always told to to make our presentations more understandable when speaking to patients and try to use common language. So when we talk about targeted therapy, what we're generally talking about is drugs that go after a very specific gene target of some sort, a protein, that is thought to be relevant to the cancer in question. So when you're talking about lung cancer, for example, in ALK translocations, it's a very specific, uh, unique protein phenomenon that's driving the cancer cell, and so inhibitors of that protein then can be used for therapeutic purposes. So that's what we mean when we say targeted therapy. Now, the fact of the matter is all the immunotherapies we're talking about are also targeted, so really in a strictly you know scientific and linguistic sense there's there's there is no true distinction there but for the purpose of conversation we put immunotherapy in a class of its own we put targeted therapy in a kind of another group and 
you know, as far as the FDA is concerned, all of these actually count as chemotherapy, but of course that's become such a dirty word that we don't say that. Um, but uh, strictly speaking, it would be true. So, so some of this is just, just kind of sorting out what is meant by these various terms, uh, I would say. Excellent. Thank you. Um, anyone else want to comment on that? That's kind of a good, good, good question here. Um, so uh, this question uh, for Dr. Fleischman, uh, from one of our online participants. What can I do to help treat colitis and diarrhea? Do they stop after immunotherapy? Well, the idea is to find the problem as it's beginning rather than letting it get so severe that the immunotherapy has to be stopped. The first thing is um, making sure you discuss the symptom. The second thing is getting the proper testing done to see that it is colitis. Um, if so, there are a variety of things that can happen. Um, first would be uh, using the anti-inflammatory drugs, steroids in particular. Uh, corticosteroids are uh, commonly known as prednisolone or prednisone in some countries or dexamethasone or decadron. Uh, that would be the first uh, group. The second group would be the anti-inflammatories that are particularly uh, for the bowel, I mentioned those before, mesalamine or um, sulfasalazine, again, to be discussed with the gastroenterologist and your oncologist to see what's best. They stay, they, their effect is, stays in the, in the bowel, so those can be helpful for some people. Um, and uh, that's, those are, that happens for, for mild or moderate. I have uh, seen patients who have uh, also been given a little bit of a different immunotherapy, but that gets really complicated and <laughs> it needs to be discussed with the treatment care team. Excellent. Thank you. Um, any other comments on that? Any? Okay, excellent. Thank you. And so definitely go back to your treating healthcare team and be sure everything is properly evaluated. And um, another question from one of our online participants, and this one is. Um, for Dr. Bryce, um, interesting question. How do I know if I'm susceptible to the side effects of immunotherapy? Are there any tests? So the second part. Are there any tests yeah. that can be done to see if I'm at greater risk? Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's an important question, and and truly, we we haven't figured out a way to say who's going to get which side effects specifically. Now we do know that patients who come in with pre-existing autoimmune problems, so if you have rheumatoid arthritis before you start immunotherapy or, or a Crohn's disease or some of these problems, psoriasis, these things will typically flare on immunotherapy. But if you don't have any baseline problems, then no, we, we really don't have a, a good way to predict which of the side effects an individual patient might get or how severe those side effects may be in an individual patient. I mean, keep, keeping in mind, of course, we're only using these drugs in patients who have life-threatening illness. So it's a very important conversation that has to be had on an individual basis in discussing risks and benefits of, of particular therapies. You know, the, the thing I always try to emphasize to cancer patients that when we're treating cancer, what we're treating is simply a variant of the patient's own healthy cells. And at the end of the day, that cancer cell is only slightly different from every, every other healthy cell in the body. So this isn't like treating an infection where you have some kind of a foreign species. And, and the reason I say that, the point I'm making is that with such narrow differences between what constitutes a cancer cell and what constitutes a healthy cell, there's very little that could ever be done that's going to affect only the cancer cell. And so, you know, th th this gets to kind of truth in advertising and, and truth in discussing things with patients. But, you know, I, I would caution people to, to really take a jaundiced eye to anybody who says, I've got a treatment that only affects cancer and has no side effects. Um, I, I'm not sure I could think of a single treatment uh, for which that statement would be true. There's always a risk, and it's always about balancing that risk and benefit. Well, that's an excellent point. That really is an issue. Um is that something others want to weigh in on as well, Dr. Fleischman? Do you want to? No, I think that's well said. It's well said. It's the kind of thing yeah. that we don't always think about in that way, but that's a very important point. Yeah, excellent. Yes. Um, so we have another question in front of our online participants. Um, 
which we I don't know if we addressed this during the call or not. Um, so I'm uh, Dr. Fleischman, if you could address this. I'm on immunotherapy and um, have been getting terrible mouth sores. I'm trying to eat soft foods and brush my teeth gently. Is there anything else I can do to manage the pain of these mouth sores? Well, mouth sores are, are common uh, in a variety of different modalities of treatment for cancer. Uh, some, some more traditional chemotherapies or radiation therapy for people who have had neck cancer uh, often get mouth sores. Um, again, go, go back to basics. Show it to your team. Your team will probably refer you to their uh, local uh, dentist who's experienced in cancer-related problems, not just cancers in the mouth, but the side effects of treatment. Um, there are a variety of, um, of uh, swish and swallow medicines or swish and spit medicines. Uh, again, it doesn't sound so wonderful, but uh, they, they act locally in the mouth. There's, there are some standard things, uh, lots of um, radiation oncologists and medical oncologists who treat head and neck cancer have their own formula often made up by the local pharmacy, which include things like Benadryl or Maalox or Capectate, things that will soothe and reduce the inflammation um, in the mouth. Uh, but um, most larger cancer centers will have access to a um, dentist or oral surgeon who's experienced in the effects of cancer and chemotherapy in the mouth, uh, and they can take a look at it and see what's what. So there is something out there for people, and you want to just work with your healthcare team on that. And actually, Ms. Thurden, do you want to comment on just really the kind of foods that one can eat when one really does have some really painful mouth sores, which is one, one of the things to avoid, I suppose. That's really important. Yeah, I would um, suggest avoiding, you know, temperature-wise hot and then flavor-wise spicy foods, um, alcohol, hard-to-chew foods, things that are, um, you know, chips and things that are pointy that can hurt, you know, going in. Um, also be mindful of the utensil that you're using. Um, you know, sometimes using a spoon is a lot more gentle than using a fork and just, you know, sometimes we eat quickly and um, you don't want to, you know, put pressure on a, a, a portion that's sore. Be careful with straws. Um, things that, you know, salt and salty foods can be really irritating as well. So we, really what it's encouraged are things like, you know, things that are soft and pretty benign, like bananas, um, you know, fruit that's that's not too tart. Um, so like watermelon, maybe peaches, um, like mashed potatoes, yogurt, cottage cheese, scrambled eggs, those things that are, are really gentle to, to chew and don't have a lot of um, innate side, uh, the flavors that can be really irritating to the mouth. So spicy, salty can be really aggressive whenever you have the mouth sores. Excellent. Well, Carolyn? Yes, yes please, uh, yes. Uh, yes, hi. I, I, I would like to add uh, another thing. I think this is wonderful, those, uh, those uh, suggestions for mouth sores. One of the things we have also found is that, as Dr. Bryce and Dr. Fleischman have mentioned before, because these immunotherapies can attack any tissue in your body, one of the tissues it can be the lining in the inside of the mouth. And uh, there are conditions that are characterized by painful blisters in the mouth in which an immune system, it's an autoimmune disease in which an immune system is overactive. And in these cases, we use, uh, as Dr. Fleischman mentioned, the corticosteroid swish and, and, and spit medications or immunos locally immunosuppressive medications. And these conditions would be diagnosed ideally by a dermatologist. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, this has just been an amazing program. I want to really thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal, and you truly represent the multidisciplinary team. And I also want to thank all of you who've been listening, those of you who've posted questions online, those of you who've been listening, those of you who still have questions, because I know there are many more questions remaining. So um, as we conclude the program today, I first of all want to um, give you some resources to get your questions answered. For those of you who still have remaining medical questions about your care, about side effects, how to manage them. 
um, about your treatment. Um, I do recommend that you obviously go back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best. They have all this information about you. Even those who've asked questions today, take this information back to your treating healthcare team. But also, I know many of you like to go to other places to get credible information. And so I always recommend the National Cancer Institute. It's a wonderful resource. They have an 800 number. Um, 1-800-422-6237, and you'll be getting that again in your evaluation materials. And we also, they also have a wonderful website, um, www.cancer.gov, and that website is a terrific resource because they have a live chat feature where you can, for, for both in the U.S. and internationally, you can post your questions, and one of their information specialists will be sure to answer it and give you all of the information that's available, that's evidence-based information that you can then read and utilize and actually share with your healthcare team. So that's very, very helpful. For those of you who would like to access the services of Cancer Care, um, those services are free and um, you can simply contact us to speak with one of our oncology social workers at 1-800-813-4673 or you may contact um, visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with cancer and coping with your treatment side effects. You're now part of this community of support and we're here to help you. And we definitely want you to take advantage of these services. Um, there are many services out there, all of, uh, both cancer care services and, of course, all these other organizations that we've mentioned as well and, and the materials you've received. Um, and I know that there are moments when you all feel alone um, in the middle of the night at all times of the day and night. And we want you to know that there are services for you to help you um, and that um, we definitely want to, um, for you to feel that there is help for you. So, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And um, I, I want to thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.